good gifts to his children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sarah liked to go shopping at garage sales. So one Saturday morning, coffee in hand, she found herself in a garage sale and she found a lamp that she liked. And it wasn't marked, so she took it up to the owner and said, how much for this lamp? And the owner said, well, that's, that's just part of the set. You have to take it all. She said, what do you mean? Well, that's the lamp, but there's a floor lamp that goes with it and a couch and two end tables and a chair and a coffee table. It, it all goes together. Sarah smiled and said, I, I just want the lamp. And the owner said, well, you can't have it. It all, it all goes together. Sarah said, I'll give you $20 for the lamp. No. 30 You can't have it. 40 This is at a garage sale. $40. And the owner said, no, I told you it's all or nothing. And Sarah said, look, I don't want all of it. I don't have room for it. I don't have a way to get it back to my house. I just want the lamp. But the owner remained firm. They said, no, it's a set. It's all or nothing. And so Sarah put the lamp down and walked away. Faith in Jesus Christ is an all or nothing faith. We receive all that Christ offers or we receive none of what Christ offers. As we head into these next few chapters, Jesus is going to be teaching on a lot of a lot of individual subjects, but there is going to be one common theme or thread that runs through the next few chapters. He is going to make a distinction between those who are his, his disciples, and the world. It's going to show up a lot in the next few chapters. And in our passage today, Jesus states how to identify or to discern those who belong to him and who doesn't. It's, it's a litmus test of sorts to determine who it is that genuinely loves and follows Jesus Christ. And here it is. He says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I don't know if you, you caught it during the reading, but three times Jesus says this same thing. Once in verse 15, once in verse 21, again in verse 23, three times, a little bit different wording, but the same thing. Four times, if you count, count how he presents it negatively in verse 24. So when the same statement is made three or four times in such a short space, that, that's like a, a strobe light telling us, pay attention here. God wants you to see this. Pay close attention. Understand what he's trying to tell you with this statement repeated over and over. So the first thing we want to do is understand exactly what Jesus means when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we need to unpack that. We also need to see that that statement, obeying his commandments, is one link in a chain that is being formed in this passage that binds everything together. It's kind of like the lamp. It's like the set. Everything goes together. It's all or nothing. 
We're going to see that the obeying Christ's commandments is an outward evidence of an invisible inward faith showing that they genuinely follow Christ. And if someone is genuinely following Christ, then they're also loved by the Father. And if they are loved by the Father, then they also have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And if they have the indwelling Holy Spirit, then they are also in a right, reconciled relationship with God. And if they're in a right, reconciled relationship with God, they also have the peace of God. None of these things can be taken out piecemeal. They go together and it's all or nothing. And this is the point of Jesus repeating his statement so many times. Jesus confronts us and confronts the reader with these words so that each one of us asks ourselves, am I keeping Christ's commands? Do I keep the word of God? For those who do keep his words, all of this is yours. Everything in this passage is yours. It belongs to you in Christ. For those who do not keep his commandments, none of it, none of it belongs to that person. Faith in Christ is an all or nothing faith. So let's start at verse 15. This is the test. Here it is. This is the statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to be one of my followers. This is what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. They follow my commandments. Simply calling yourself a Christian or or professing faith isn't going to cut it. He's saying that's not good enough. Anybody can make a claim. Anybody can say, yeah, I'm a Christian. It happens all the time. He's saying that that's not it. Talk is cheap. He's saying, my disciples keep my commandments. And those who do not keep Jesus' commandments are not his disciples. I'm sure we've all met someone like this who claims to be a Christian. I remember talking with one man in particular who I had a close enough relationship that I could gracefully confront him. And I told him, I said, look, I know you believe you're a Christian, but according to scripture, you're not. It, It doesn't add up. You're saying one thing, but there is, there is multiple pieces of evidence that point in the opposite direction. You can't just call yourself a Christian. You have to actually be one. And look who he's saying this to. These are his closest disciples. These are his chosen apostles. This is Peter. This is John, the loved disciple. No one gets a free pass. No one is exempt. No one gets to bypass this checkpoint, everybody has to show ID at the door. Everybody has to pass this, this litmus test. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So this naturally leads to the question, what does he mean by keep? Let's make sure we understand that. It does not mean sinless perfection. When he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he doesn't mean that you have to follow each commandment, you have to obey perfectly, and if you mess up one time, then you're out. That's not it. First uh, John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Christ is sinlessly perfect, not us. You are not perfect. I am not perfect. Jesus is perfect, and that's why we need a Savior. So that's not what I mean. So what does keep mean? It means to keep. It means to observe. 
to fulfill, to pay attention to, and to persist in obedience. So let's, let's paint a picture of this person who keeps the commandments of Jesus Christ. The person who is keeping Christ's commandments is the one who is diligently seeking to know what God's word says and then intentionally reordering their life around that word. This is the person who doesn't just come to church on Sunday and then say, well, I I guess I'm good to go. I've, I've checked that box off. No, they wake up every morning wanting to please God, wanting to serve God, wanting to obey his commandments. This is the person who has established a regular pattern of obedience to and application of God's word. This is the person who does not compartmentalize and who says, well, I'll give God this much of my life, but I'm keeping a hold of this part. No, they they say, you have all my life. I'm giving everything to you. I exist to serve you. I'm I'm your follower uh, from beginning to end. When they sin, they feel quick and strong conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they, they immediately take all measures, all necessary measures to eliminate sin. They don't remain in sin. This person is not a spiritual Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde who, who acts piously when they're around other believers, but then uh, as soon as they get back to their car, they're back to, to worldly thoughts and speech and actions. It's, it's not that. It's the one who keeps Christ's commands and who demonstrates a, a steady, unwavering pattern of continual living their life according to the teaching of Christ. When they fall, they get back up and they start back on the path. They don't fall and then walk off the path. They get back on it. So it is someone who persists by grace in obedience. That, that's the picture we should have of somebody who is keeping the commandments of Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the standard that Jesus lays out for everyone. This is it. This is the benchmark. And for those who are genuinely in Christ, everything is theirs. It's all theirs. For those who are not, none of it. It's an all or nothing faith. Verse 16, the Holy Spirit. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. First of all, here's a picture of the Trinity. If you ever want to to take someone in the Bible to a picture of the Trinity, you can take them here and show them God the Son asking God the Father to send God the Holy Spirit. So we've got a, a Trinitarian verse. Holy Spirit is called helper, could also be translated as advocate or counselor. Uh, it means one who comes to someone's aid to be with you forever. Well, Jesus is leaving. His incarnate presence with his disciples is almost over And yet, in the Great Commission, he promises to be with them forever. So how is Jesus going to keep this promise of his continual, abiding, ongoing presence when he's leaving? And the answer, of course, is the sending of the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. God is truth. There is no falsehood in him. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it really shouldn't surprise us the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of the truth, uh, Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit, excuse me, testifies to the truth of Scripture. He testifies to the the truth of of Christ. He testifies to the the truth of uh, the, the Word of God. But the world, meaning all unbelievers, cannot receive him. They cannot see him. And they do not know him. So the spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth, does not dwell in those who do not belong to Christ. It's all or nothing. We're reminded of 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. So the world gets nothing of the Holy Spirit, the believer gets all of the Holy Spirit. Loved by the Father, verses 18 and 19, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, even though things are bad and they're going to get worse over the next few hours. Jesus is not abandoning them. Yet in a little while, and the world will see me no more, but they, but you will see me. So the, the world is not going to see Christ anymore, he says, but you will. And this matches exactly what we see. We see this in the Gospels. We see this in the book of Acts. We see this in Paul's report in 1 Corinthians 15. There were several post-resurrection gospel appearances, and they were all to believers or to those who, as a result of the appearance, became believers. So this is exactly what we see in in the rest of of the New Testament. Jesus appears to his followers, but he doesn't appear to the world. That that time has passed. That window of grace has been shut. Because I live, you also will live. This is another benefit. Believers have spiritual life because they're spiritually united with Christ. Christ who conquered sin and death. If you're united to Christ, you have life. And then 20 through 24 all point to this this father-son-believer connection, this chain, this this set. You can kind of hear these links being formed as as we read through these verses. They all go together. In that day, and the resurrection is in view here, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Chain, chain, chain. Whoever loves my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself with him. You you can hear that language. He's saying this all goes together. It's a set. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. God makes himself known to his followers. He manifests himself to his people and I think we can all point to multiple times in our life where we have experienced the the presence of God God revealing himself to us in the form of uh, answered prayer in the form of conviction of sin in the form of spiritual discipline in provision in protection in our spiritual giftedness, God reveals himself to us in, in unique and in varied ways, but we've all, we all have stories to tell of God revealing himself to us and how he loves us and manifests himself to us. 
And then the remaining disciple named Judas asks a question in verse 22. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answers in the next couple of verses by circling back to this this connection, this linked set, this relationship between God the Father and the Son and the believer and the Holy Spirit. He states it positively and negatively. First, positively, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's the third time he said it now in this passage. And my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Those who truly belong to me are those who keep my commandments, keep my word. Not just those who say it, but those who keep it. Those who walk and live under my lordship, those who have a pattern of consistent obedience, that person, he says, belongs to me. That person belongs to the Father, which also means that person belongs to the kingdom of God. That person is in a right relationship, reconciled to the Father. That person has the Holy Spirit. And then negatively, whoever does not love me does not keep my words So anyone who does not live under and submit to and obey Jesus' words and his lordship does not belong to him. No matter what they say, they don't belong to him. Therefore, they are not right with God. They do not belong to God. They do not know God. They do not belong to the kingdom of God. They have no claim to the promises of God. And they remain in this unforgiven, sinful state under the full condemnation of their sin. It's all or nothing. Faith in Christ is an all or nothing faith. It's like buying a car. You you can't, if you went down to Phillips and you said, okay, I'll take that one. But I just want the headlights. I really like the looks of those, the the style. Just give me those. They would laugh at you. No, it's, it's all or nothing. You can't buy the headlights. Similarly, if you actually bought the car, you wouldn't just get a tire. You'd get it all. It's an all or nothing faith. And at the end of 24, he provides another reminder. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. He's saying everything I'm telling you is from God the Father. We're united. We're together on this. In verses 25 and 26, we have a promise to the apostles. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples for a little over three years, and he said a lot of things to them, Uh, continual teaching and and correcting and building up. How are they possibly going to remember everything? I mean, it's it's hard enough for us to remember the the title of the sermon from last week. I, I think, don't please don't raise your hand, but I mean, if we had to raise our hands... What, 50-50 maybe? Let alone three years ago? How are they possibly going to remember that? And Jesus says, uh, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will be sent to you from the Father in my name and he will teach and bring to remembrance all that Jesus spoke to them. In other words, uh, some of these men were going to be writing the New Testament. All of them are going to be given a proclamation ministry as they are sent out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They're, they're all going to be actively involved in, in that, that fledgling church exploding out from the, the epicenter of Jerusalem. They're all going to be part of that. And Jesus is saying, don't worry. 
you're not going to have to remember everything only on what you can remember under your own power. Instead, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He will make sure that you get it right. He will ensure that what you write down and what you teach is accurate. And then peace with God. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Well, what kind of peace does Jesus give his followers? The only kind that matters. Peace with God. Jesus contrasts his peace with anything the world has to offer. The world will, will, will promote, will advertise, will offer, will seduce with, will entice with a counterfeit peace. It's, it's fleeting. It's temporary. It's surface. It's not real. It's just a mirage. The, the world says, look, you can give peace and contentment through uh, possessions, through wealth, um, position, uh, relationships, experiences. You, I mean, you name it. The world says, look, if you could just have everything you wanted, then, then you'll have it. You'll have that peace that you want. But the truth is, I think we're all aware of this. If we literally had everything we could ever want, we still don't have peace with God. We still don't have inner peace. We don't have spiritual peace. Without faith in Christ, there is no peace. Without Christ, the unbeliever will always have that quiet yet persistent voice in the back of their head saying, but what about your sin? But what about God? But what happens when you die? That voice will be there. And there is no way to, to silence that, that voice. This is one of the, the biggest lies that the world promotes about death. Um, what, what do they put on tombstones? What have they been putting on tombstones for centuries? And they abbreviate it with three letters. Yeah, R-I-P, rest in peace. Rest in peace. So the world says, don't worry, because in the end, no matter what kind of life you've lived, in the end, you'll be resting in peace. Now, this is a hard truth, but, but we need to hear it. On the authority of scripture, there is not one person who has ever died outside of Christ who is resting in peace. No one. That is a lie. And we, we're probably thinking of family members. So am I. So am I. But nobody rests in peace outside of Christ. In contrast, the believer goes through life with, with a, un, a spiritual union with Jesus Christ and he, does, he or she does not have a troubled heart. They're not afraid of anything. And that question, what about your sin, has been answered. The, the believer says, well, it's been paid for. Christ paid for my sin on the cross. I don't stand under condemnation anymore. I'm fully accepted by the Father. Jesus has paid for it. I've believed in God's word and I've acted on it by repenting of my sin and turning to, to Jesus Christ, my Savior. I don't have anything to worry about. The, the believer goes through life unafraid of death. 
that question, what happens when you die, has been answered. I know what's going to happen. Christ is going to receive me into the heavenly realm. I will be with him forever. There will be a day when I will be raised imperishable. I will be reunited with this, with this body that will be glorified, that will never die, will never get sick, that will never grow old. And I'll be with God and other believers forever. I have those questions answered. I don't have to be afraid of anything. I will enjoy eternal peace with God. But it's all or nothing. The peace goes to the believer along with all those other things. For the unbeliever, there is no peace. And then finally, verses 28 through 31. These are the last few uh, verses that kind of close out this section. Some of it's a repetition of what Jesus has already taught. Uh, He says, "If if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So let's, let's break that into two sections. The first section he seems to be saying, look, if you knew, knew me in the fullest sense, if you had this full-blown Christology and, and knew everything that was going to happen with the cross and knew everything that was happening with this penal substitution and, and the atonement and, and the grand redemptive plan of God, if you knew that, then you would be rejoicing that I'm leaving you, just like we do today. We rejoice over the cross. We're thankful for the cross. cross. They would have been too if they had known everything that it meant. The second part where he says the father is greater than I, sometimes people come to that and they stumble because Jesus has been very upfront about his equality with the father. We've seen that several times through the gospel of John. The father is in me and I am in the father. Um, We are equal. Uh, I and the father are one. Uh, And then he says the father is greater than I. And so some people scratch their heads and they say, well, is he contradicting himself? No. God does not change, which means that God has eternally been a trinity. There has always been a father. There has always been a son. There has always been a Holy Spirit. They do not change. Uh, The father and the son and the Holy Spirit are all one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. Yet they are not the same in the way they relate to one another or in their order. For example, the father sent the son, but the son nowhere sends the father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son, but the father and the son do not proceed from the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says that the father is greater than I, he's not saying that the father is better or uh, more powerful Um, he's not saying that the father is more God than, than I am. He is simply recognizing his position within the Godhead that the father sends and the son is sent. Position and order. Verse 29, this is almost an exact word for word repeat of John 13, 19. Our verse says, and now I have told you before it takes place, so then when it when it does take place, you may believe. John thirteen nineteen says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it takes place, you may believe that I am he. Almost exactly the same thing. John wants us to see that this was not a surprise. Uh, Jesus called it ahead of time. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you. We know what this means. The the amount of time of Jesus' incarnate present with his disciples could be measured in hours at this point, minutes possibly at this point. 
the ruler of this world is coming. Notice he doesn't say, Judas is about to betray me in the garden. Or, or uh, the, the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are sending their, their, their guard out to get me. Or Pilate's about to hand me over to be crucified. No, he says, the ruler of this world, and that teaches us that Satan is at work, operating behind and within the unbelieving world. Jesus says, he, meaning Satan, has no claim on me. Satan has no claim on Jesus because Jesus is perfectly righteous. There is nothing. He has no sin on Jesus. He has no dirt on Jesus. He has nothing to accuse Jesus of because there's nothing there to accuse him of. He's perfectly sinless. That's why we need Christ. He has plenty of dirt on us. Satan has a a huge claim. Satan has truckloads of claim on us. We have all kinds of sin. Jesus does not. That's why we need this perfect Savior. We need his perfect righteousness. We need that clean record that none of us have. Verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me. Now, what has he said throughout this passage? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And then what does he do here? He says, I'm I'm not just going to say I love the Father. I'm, I'm going to make sure that there is outward visible evidence of that love. I am going to obey the Father's commandments so that you may know that I also love the Father. And then he says, rise, let us get up from here. And at that point, they all presumably leave the upper room. Faith in Christ is an all or nothing faith. Holy Spirit, love by the Father and in a right reconciled relationship with him and peace with God. All these things belong to the believer. None of these things belong to the unbeliever. A person either has all Christ has to offer or nothing that Christ has to offer. So I have to ask, do you have it all or nothing? Do you have all that Christ offers or do you have nothing that Christ offers? Somebody might say, well, I'm in church, aren't I? Okay. All who are truly in Christ will attend Lord's Day worship, but not all who attend Lord's Day worship are truly in Christ. Judas was in the upper room. Lord's Day worship, attending Lord's Day worship, of course, if you're a believer, yes, you will be here. But that is just one part of what it means to have this overall pattern and lifestyle of walking in the commandments. That's just one thing, and it can be compartmentalized. Somebody else might say, well, I've made my peace with God. Have you heard that? Have you heard somebody say, kind of in a solemn moment, well, I'm glad that works out for you. I'm glad you're a Christian, but I've, I've made my peace with God. No, you haven't. No, you have not. You cannot, you can no longer, or you can no sooner make your own peace with God as you can make yourself or make God. There is no peace without Jesus Christ. So I ask everyone, do you love Christ? Do you keep his commandments? Is there a steady pattern of unwavering obedience of actively living your life according to scripture, a continual reordering of your life around the word of God? If so, 
I want to encourage you and assure you, you have it all. If you are in Christ, you have it all. You have forgiveness of sins. You have peace with God now and forever. You have uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have a right reconciled relationship with God. You have it all. You have nothing to fear. You have no grounds for being spiritually troubled because you have it all. The pattern of obedience to God's word in your life is the visible outward evidence of the inward invisible faith that saves you. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you are not a follower, or, listen carefully, if you say you're a Christian, but your life exhibits a pattern of disobedience, if you're engaging in ongoing unrepentant sin, if you do not keep the word of God, then you have nothing. You have no part. You have no share. You have no peace. But that can change today. You can repent of your sin. You can trust Jesus for the forgiveness of of your sins. Today could be the day where you go from having nothing to having it all. And that turns on faith in Jesus Christ. That turns on repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone for your salvation. And I want to make this clear. That pattern, that ongoing pattern of, of obedience, that is a, a evidence, that's a, that's a visible evidence of someone who's following Christ but it is not a requirement for coming to Christ. In other words, I don't want anyone here to think, well, I have to, okay, I, I, need, a, I need a couple, maybe 30 days at least of, of this pattern before I can come to Christ, before he'll accept me. No, he will accept you right now just as you are. You turn to him now, and then once you come to Christ, once you believe in him, he will give you the Holy Spirit. He will give you that new desire to follow him and to walk in his commandments. Faith in Christ is an all or nothing faith. So turn to him today and receive it all. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are our redeemer. And in Christ we have it all. Father, we thank you that You've made it plain in scripture. It's not up to us. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with you. We can't make our own peace with you. We must turn to Jesus Christ in faith. So Father, I ask that if there's anyone here this morning who has not done that, that they would do it right now. That they would not wait another day. And Father, for those of us who are in Christ, give us that rock-solid assurance, if there's any doubt in our mind, if there's any hesitation in our hearts, if there's any wondering where we stand, assure us, Father, we have it all. Our salvation is not based on our day-to-day ability to, to follow your commands perfectly. Our status has been secured by Jesus Christ. Nothing can shake it. Nothing can change it. Nothing 
can remove it.